Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. Life doesn't come with a user manual, so when life stops working for you, it's pretty normal to feel stuck. Imagine somebody who spent, oh, say, 25 years being really distracted, overwhelmed by clutter, and fluctuating between being really into obscure ancient history and not being able to find the motivation to do the dishes. That person is me, and apparently, if there were a user manual to life, it might have told me that I have ADHD and should talk to my doctor about that. Therapists are about as close to a manual as we can get. 
folks who are trained to help you figure out challenging emotions and learn coping skills. BetterHelp has connected millions of people with licensed, registered therapists for convenient and secure online therapy. It's convenient and 100% accessible online. No waiting rooms, no traffic, and not even endless googling of therapist near me. You just fill out a questionnaire and get matched with an appropriate therapist. And if it doesn't click, BetterHelp makes it easy to switch providers. Everyone deserves to feel their best, so get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com persia. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash persia. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 25, Behistun. There's a lot to talk about today, so I'll get some housekeeping out of the way before diving all the way in. First of all, thank you to everyone for bearing with me as my schedule has fluctuated recently. We're still sort of settling in here in St. Louis, and trying to get a footing in graduate school is, quite frankly, a pain in the ass. Thank you also to everyone who has supported me on Patreon. I really could not continue doing this without you. We recently went over 40 patrons, and I'm just ecstatic. You guys are awesome, and it's a huge help to know that there are people out there who want to support the show. For those that don't know or aren't sure about it, Patreon is a website that helps online creators like me get some financial support from listeners like you. In exchange, you get various benefits like being added to my monthly email updates, an ad-free version of the podcast feed, bonus episodes, and more. This month's bonus episode is about the movie 300, and I'm thinking of bringing in the new year with an episode on Sir Henry Creswick Rawlinson, a very important man in Achaemenid studies whom I'll introduce in just a few minutes. If I've piqued your interest, you can find links to that on the website and in the episode description. So on to the show. For the last few episodes, I've been talking about the military activities that dominated the early reign of King Darius the Great, the rebellions of 522 to 518, and the conquest wars from 519 to 515. Last time, as Darius expanded his empire, the primary sources got less and less detailed and less certain. But in the episodes covering the rebellions against Darius, we had a day-by-day record of the victories in the form of the Behistun inscription. Even though I've already talked about it extensively, we haven't really scratched the surface of the monument's history or importance. The cuneiform text is possibly the most significant document in Achaemenid history. And I call it a document, and I'll call it a monument, but neither really does it any sort of justice. Behistun, also called Bisatun or Bistun, is a mountain near Kermanshah, Iran, that rises lonely from the surrounding plateau. It was a place of religious and political significance long before Darius came along. The Elamites considered the mountain to be sacred, a belief apparently shared by the Medes, who built both a temple and a fortress near that site, and Darius was just the first in a long line of rulers who would co-opt the sacred mountain for their own purposes. By 518 BC, as the rebellions against his control were winding down, Darius ordered artisans and engineers to construct a monument about his rise to power. Just creating the space for the inscription was a feat. The sides of the mountain are sheer, 
and the inscription was carved 100 meters or about 300 feet above the mountain road in a place that's nearly impossible to access without scaffolding. To commemorate Darius's successes, a scene was imposed on the mountainside, 15 meters wide by 25 tall, or roughly 50 by 80 feet. It depicts Darius presiding over his defeated foes. Depicted in a relief on the mountainside, Darius is depicted with the Magian usurper Gomata beneath his feet, supposedly the evil doppelganger of Bardia, the son of Cyrus. Chained together in a procession before the king are the nine defeated rebels discussed in the text below, lined up in order of their defeat. Behind Darius are Intifernes and Otanes, two of his co-conspirators against Bardia depicted in honored roles as the personal bow and spear carriers of the king. And above them all sits the Faravahar, a spiritual symbol depicting the head and torso of a man with the same features as the king protruding from a winged disc. The man extends one hand open and the other gripping a ring, a traditional Assyrian badge of kingship in their artwork. Traditionally, this figure has been interpreted as Ahura Mazda, the greatest god of the Persian and Zoroastrian religion. In the context of the Behistun inscription, where Mazda is repeatedly invoked, his presence would make sense. However, iconoclastic modern Zoroastrians who still use the symbol are sometimes insistent that it is not an image of a god, but the king's divine spirit, or a fravashi, a sort of guardian spirit sent by Ahura Mazda to watch over someone, in this case, the great king. It's an interesting image, and a phenomenal example of Achaemenid imperial art with all its various influences, and also a catalog of the traditional and stereotypical appearances of all of the resubjugated peoples. But it's also the only victory monument in Achaemenid history. While almost all of the other empires of the region before and after the Achaemenids built monuments proclaiming their conquests, the gruesome punishments of deposed kings, and images of slaughtered enemies, the Persians are an exception. As Iron Age Near Eastern conquest monuments go, chained kings and crucifixions described in the text were pretty tame compared to the Assyrian penchant for mutilation and severed heads on spikes. However, after this one monument, the Persians seem to have lost their taste for even the mild version. No other monument of this style has ever been found or recorded in the Achaemenid period. They certainly had more victories and conquests, but seem to prefer an outlook of ignoring the defeated rather than glorifying their victories. Beneath the image are five neatly ordered columns of old Persian cuneiform text, proclaiming the power and success of Darius against all who resisted him. To the right of the image and the left of the text are a few columns of Elamite inscription, and to the left of the image and around the adjacent corner of the mountain is an inscription in Babylonian Akkadian. All three versions are identical, save for a few regional idiosyncrasies. Additional text in all three languages, though mostly Persian and Elamite, is floating around the figures and people in the scene of the relief. Only a few generations later, when Theseus was writing in the court of Artaxerxes II, the origins of the Behistun inscription were already blending into legend and folklore. The Greek physician believed it was the work of a legendary Babylonian queen named Semiramis. Over the following centuries, more monuments and shrines were constructed at Behistun, a Hellenistic altar and statue of Hercules were hewn into the mountainside, the Parthians constructed a village and a sacred site there, and much later, Sassanid rulers seem to have known that it was an Achaemenid monument as they built a palace there and carved their own relief below that of Darius. However, by the end of the Sassanid period and the beginning of Islamic history in Iran, the Achaemenids were largely forgotten, and Darius's relief was widely attributed to the Sassanid king Khusro. Local legends about Iranian folk heroes grew up to explain many Achaemenid sites, such as the story of Farhad at Behistun. 
Farhad loved the Sassanid king Shapur's wife and cut the mountain in half to find water in a bid to win favor with the king and his beloved. However, Farhad was told that the king's wife was dead and thus killed himself, leaving only this monument to tell his story. Behistun specifically was not mentioned to European scholars or historians until 1598 CE, at which point Europeans devised their own bizarre explanations, ranging from Assyrian kings to a depiction of Jesus and the Twelve Apostles. I can only assume that they thought Gomada, underneath of the main figure's feet, was Judas. Only in the 18th and 19th century, under the influence of British colonialism, was Behistun investigated and deciphered to be understood. The key figure in all of this was a British military officer serving the East India Company in Iran named Henry Creswick Rawlinson. Rawlinson was a man who in many ways represented the worst parts of 19th century British imperialism, but also the best parts of Victorian scholarship. There's no doubt that he led a very interesting life, which is why I'm looking forward to doing that biographical episode on Patreon. None of the three cuneiform languages were known at the time, but beginning in 1853, Rawlinson started working to rediscover old Persian cuneiform by reverse engineering modern Persian and trying to work out patterns with the known glyphs on the site. Once deciphered, Rawlinson's understanding of old Persian was used to understand the Akkadian and Elamite texts at Behistun, much like the Greek and Demotic texts were used to understand the hieroglyphs of the Rosetta Stone in Egypt. Once the Behistun inscriptions in Akkadian and Elamite were understood, they could be extrapolated to read other texts written in those languages, and once there was a sufficient corpus of Akkadian out there, it could be used to understand other Near Eastern languages in a bilingual and trilingual inscriptions all over the region. This unlocked the literature not just of the Achaemenid Persians, but also of the Mesopotamian and Elamite civilizations that stretched back to the dawn of recorded history and the Sumerians. It is fitting that Behistun serves as the first modern Old Persian text understood by scholars, as it was also the first Old Persian text understood by the Old Persians. This is the first known document to be written in a Persian language. According to the Behistun inscription itself, Darius had a writing system invented for the Persian language, which his scribes did by adapting cuneiform symbols into an alphabetic format. With no small amount of help from Rawlinson, the full text of all three languages was verified to be the same. And decades later, examples of a fourth version were found on papyrus fragments written in Aramaic. This would have been the version that was distributed across the whole Persian Empire. English translations often collate the information of all four versions, but maintain the five-column organization of the Old Persian text. I've linked one in the episode description and on the bibliography page of the website. So now you know a bit about Behistun and its significance to the modern study of the ancient Near East in general, and we can go on to what it actually says. If you've been listening attentively over the last six episodes, you should know most of that too, and I won't go into every event listed because I've already covered them in detail. The inscription opens with a very formulaic introduction of the king, announcing his name, lineage, and titles. The whole inscription is written from Darius's perspective and begins with this. I am Darius, the great king, king of kings, the king in Persia, the king of lands, the son of Histaspes, the grandson of Arsimes, the Achaemenid. King Darius says, my father is Histaspes. The father of Histaspes was Arsimes. The father of Arsimes was Ariaramnes, and the father of Ariaramnes was Taspes. The father of Taspes was Achaemenes. King Darius says, that is why we are called Achaemenids. From antiquity, we have been noble. From antiquity, our dynasty has been royal. 
King Darius says, eight of my dynasty were kings before me. I am the ninth. Nine in succession, we have been kings. King Darius says, by the grace of Ahura Mazda, am I king? Ahura Mazda has granted me this kingdom. Right off the bat, there are things to talk about here. First of all, welcome to a new royal family. Darius's last shared relation with his predecessor was their shared great-great-grandfather, Taspis, at least according to this inscription. Yet, when he says there were nine kings in succession, he is also claiming Cyrus the Great's family to get three more kings. This gets odd when you realize that, according to the Cyrus Cylinder, there should be at least ten, if you count Cyrus I, Cambyses I, Cyrus the Great, and most recently Cambyses II in their own line down from Taysbeats. Evidently, Darius does not count one of them as a king in that line of succession, but it's impossible to tell who. Either that, or he's implying that one of his ancestors, presumably Achaemenes in this situation, was not a king. Darius also asserts that his family were kings simultaneously with Cyrus's family. It's hard to know if he's trying to make the same claim about a bloodline that Cyrus did when he called himself the Eternal Scion of Kingship decades earlier, or if there really was a separate Persian kingdom from Anshan before the creation of the empire. Both theories have been supported by different scholars, with not much evidence to go around. These opening lines are also home to a pair of firsts in Persian history. One is the first definite usage of the family name Achaemenid, and a reference to their, and a reference to their eponymous ancestor, Achaemenes. Cyrus the Great never took the family tree further back than Taspis, and clearly identified his clan with that line of descent. Darius, on the other hand, proclaims that he is a descendant of Achaemenes. It's an interesting difference because Darius also traces his lineage back to Taspis, just like Cyrus. The question is, why bother to bring up another generation, and why did Darius's family identify more with Achaemenes than their other ancestor, Taspis? If you assume that Darius is being 100% truthful here, there is no good answer. The best theory I have heard is that Cyrus I, as a younger son, was the first in a cadet branch of the Achaemenid house that identified itself with Cyrus's father, Taspis. However, the elder son of Taspis, Aria Romnes, and his descendants had the higher status as Achaemenids. That doesn't really work out for two reasons. First of all, it's basically inventing an old Persian naming convention out of whole cloth. And second, it goes against the old Persian inscription on the gates of Pasargadai, proclaiming, I am Cyrus, an Achaemenid. Here's the thing about that inscription. According to Darius, right here in the Behistun inscription, Old Persian didn't exist as a written language for Cyrus to use. So that proclamation must have been made and added to Pasargadai after Darius came to power. Darius himself clearly didn't think Cyrus belonged to a Taspid cadet branch. He identified Cyrus with Achaemenes in a way that the original great king never had in his own life. That brings me to the second and more likely possibility floated by modern scholars. Darius jammed Taspis into his existing family tree. Perhaps Taspis and Achaemenes were related, if they existed, or perhaps not, but Darius made one the son of the other. Achaemenes had to be at the end of the line because everyone knew that he was the ancestor at the top of Darius's family tree. And by shoehorning Taspis in between the legendary founder of the family and his own next known great-grandfather, Darius tied Cyrus's family to his own. Nobles and kingdoms like Persia all tend to be distant cousins one way or another, but this was Darius's way of explicitly tying himself to the Taspid kings, whether it was true or not. After all, this is the same inscription that says an evil twin impersonated the secretly murdered crowned prince for months. What's one more fudged detail? 
Finally, for the first time in Persian history, the king attributes his power to the god Ahura Mazda. This is the first definitive- I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. It's sign that the Achaemenid kings venerated that deity above all others. But the Behistun inscription brings that number up quickly. Just in this introduction, Uhura Mazda is invoked eight time, with 76 invocations dotting the whole inscription. Darius wanted there to be no doubts who his authority stemmed from and why it ought to be respected. The next section is a full list of the provinces in the empire as they stood in 518 BC, and a line about how they were absolutely loyal to the great king. Obviously, that wasn't in any way true, but his whole inscription is royal propaganda, so pay no attention to the rebellions behind the curtain. The introduction ends with a few lines that attempt to premise the rest of the inscription. Quote, King Darius says, Within these lands, whosoever was a friend, him have I surely protected. Whosoever was hostile, him have I utterly destroyed. By the grace of Ahura Mazda, these lands have conformed to my decrees. As it was commanded unto them by me, so was it done. King Darius says, Ohura Mazda has granted unto me this empire. Ohura Mazda brought me help until I gained this empire. Now by the grace of Ohura Mazda do I hold this empire. Those who supported the great king had his favor, those who didn't were doomed, and that was the divine plan. Ohura Mazda helped Darius ascend the throne and gave him the authority to keep it. The rest of the column tells the story of Cambyses and Bardia and Gomada. I won't go into this because there's little to say that I didn't cover in episodes 19 and 20. The Behistun account of Bardia's assassination by Cambyses, the impersonator Gomada, and the death of the false Bardia at Darius's hands with a small cohort of supporters is the basis for all of the Greek and Roman versions of the story too, but lacks their detail. Some of that is due to the style of Persian inscriptions versus Greek literature, but the one aspect that does stand out from how I told the story a few weeks ago is how Darius-centric Behistun makes it. 
If you follow this account of things, Darius single-handedly unveiled the imposter Gomada and led his personal supporters to kill the Magus personally with Ahura Mazda's divine support. This, more than any other single section, explains what the Behistun inscription is for. It is a brief account of Darius's rise to power and a lengthy treatise on the power and amazing deeds of the King of Kings himself. Column 1 ends where episode 22 began, with the first rebellions against Darius in Babylon and Elam. It's interesting that those two revolts are included in column 1, aside from all of the other revolts. There's no documented reason for the different format, but as usual we've got some theories. One is that this first section was drafted while Darius was still occupying Babylon, and was incorporated into a larger monument years later when the political situation had changed drastically. Another is that the inscription attempts to represent the temporal phases of Darius's rise to power as viewed by the Persians at the time. First he defeated Bardia, Ashina, and Adintu Bel, then there were more revolts, and so on. Of course, both of these ideas may be making a lot out of nothing. Elam and Babylon could be part of column one just for symmetry's sake between the four big columns, which would explain why the story of the Babylonian revolt carries over to column two for just a few words. Columns 2 and 3 are the primary sources for the wars I talked about in episode 22. I covered almost everything said there in that episode, with the exception of the formulaic descriptions of Darius's victories. When describing a victory in battle, without fail, the inscription says, Ahura Mazda brought me help. By the grace of Ahura Mazda did my army utterly overthrow that rebel host. On the nth day of the month's name, the battle was fought by them. The scribes and sculptors just had to supply the specific date and month to fill out the inscription. And again, we see this thing where Darius takes all the divine credit. Even in a section talking about how he sent a general to deal with the rebels on his behalf while he was elsewhere, Darius always says that Ahura Mazda brought him help and his army overthrew the rebels. Never take your eye off the prize, Darius. The lone exception to the formula is a slight change when describing the second battle in Parthia, where Darius's own father, Histospes, was the commanding satrap. In that one instance, Histospes gets credit, which he didn't even get in the first battle that he won for his son. The sentence reads, Ahura Mazda brought me help. By the grace of Ahura Mazda, Histospes utterly defeated that rebel host. Even then, it's Darius receiving the divine aid, but at least Histospes gets credit for defeating the rebels that time. The other big difference between Behistun and the way I told the same story is that I went in chronological order, jumping between provinces all over the place as the battles happened in an attempt to illustrate the scale of these revolts. Behistun groups things together, mostly by each rebel in each region in no particular order. The procession of kings in the relief is generally considered to be the order in which they were defeated, but the text itself is all over the place chronologically. First is Martia of Elam, then the first half of the war with Fravatish in Media, then a break for the action in Armenia that supported him, then the rest of Fravatish, and then, then the rest of Fravatish, then the Sagartian revolt that supported him too. Then we get everything from Parthia, Margiana, and Persia in that order, before wrapping with the second revolt in Babylon. There doesn't seem to be any particular reasoning to how the events were ordered in the text, other than a possible attempt to end with the Persian home province that was drafted on papyrus before the Second Babylonian Revolt broke out, since that was a few months later. But that's just speculation to try and make a nonsensical order make sense. Column 4 is where I've really got more to discuss because it steps away from the wars I've been discussing for a few episodes. 
it's pretty clear that this section was originally intended to be the conclusion. Four of the five columns are full length, and this one acts as a summary of events and a moral judgment on the wars fought in the first 15 months of Darius's reign. First comes the summary, where Darius lists Gomada and the eight other rebel kings defeated since he took the throne. This section, too, follows a formula. Each king is introduced by name and ethnicity, then it says that he lied, what he lied about, and where he revolted. So Gomada's entry says, one was Gomada, the Magian. He lied, saying, I am Bardia, the son of Cyrus. He made Persia to revolt. Or another was Fravartish, the Mede. He lied, saying, I am Kshatrita of the dynasty of Syaxeres. He made Media to revolt. Or another was named Frada of Margiana. He lied, saying, I am king of Margiana. He made Margiana to revolt. And so on. It's because of this list of lies that historians have nicknamed the rebels against Darius, the Liar Kings, because each one is accused of something, even if it's just being king while Darius claimed the territory. But despite the catchy nickname, Liars doesn't really capture what Darius is trying to convey here. The old Persian word being used is a durugia, which derives from the word druge, the Zoroastrian concept of cosmic disorder and moral wrong that stands as the opposite of arta, which is often translated as truth. Darius isn't just saying that the rebels weren't telling the truth. He's saying that they were upsetting the cosmic order of the universe by claiming the kingship when Darius was given Ahura Mazda's divine mandate to rule their territory. They were literally going against the will of God. The next segment follows very naturally. After enumerating the corruption, evil, and lies of the rebels, Darius has a lengthy religious invocation calling on Ahura Mazda to affirm the truth of his exaggerated and propagandistic inscription, and calling for confirmation that his royal actions were divinely sanctioned. As a whole, it's pretty run-of-the-mill. Darius wanted everyone to know that this inscription told nothing but the truth, according to Ahura Mazda, and that he, unlike the rebels, was not a liar, but a servant of Arta, the truth and cosmic order. His family is the only family with any right to rule, and anyone who opposed the new king would be destroyed. However, within that pretty standard royal propaganda, there are some key lines and phrases that are really interesting. First of all, and my personal favorite, the greatest humble brag of all time. King Darius says, I call Ahura Mazda to witness that this is true and not lies. All of it I have done in a single year. King Darius says, By the grace of Ahura Mazda, I did much more which is not graven on this inscription. On this account it has not been inscribed, lest he who shall read this inscription hereafter should then hold that which has been done by me to be excessive and not believe it and take it to be lies. No, really, guys. I did all of this in one year. In fact, I've left some things out because I was so awesome this year that I didn't think you'd believe me if I told you everything. Cool story, Darius. There's also a call for blessings on those who propagate the story being told on the monument and the destruction and death for any who tried to cover up the official account of Darius's first year. This, combined with how successfully any unflattering accounts were suppressed, even in the Greek world, shows us that Darius was very committed to his version of events. Like I've discussed in past episodes, the official account is murky, filled with implausible and fantastical imposters and very little explanation of exactly why the supposed lies weren't true. Like I've discussed in past episodes, the official account is murky, filled with implausible and fantastical imposters and very little explanation of why the supposed lies weren't true. 
Darius's connection to the House of Cyrus the Great was tenuous, even in his own words, and he needed to suppress any claims of illegitimacy. Finally, there's also King Darius says, On this account, Ahura Mazda brought me help, and all the other gods, all that there are, because I was not wicked, nor was I a liar, nor was I a despot, neither I nor any of my family. It's that all the other gods bit that really catches my eye. It's not the later Zoroastrian word Yazada that I usually use when I'm talking about other Iranian deities, but the more general Baga, used for any and all divinities. It's the only time in all of Darius's inscriptions that he goes off script and invokes gods besides his patron, Ahura Mazda. In one sense, this is just emphatic in the same way that someone today might say, God or whoever else is listening. But on the other hand, it's probably not an invocation to appease foreign audiences like Cyrus invoking Babylonian gods on his cylinder. Old Persian inscriptions tend to cater to a Persian or Iranian audience, leaving the Mesopotamians to different stock phrases in the Akkadian versions of the same script. The thing is, or whoever else is listening, is more of a desperate cry than you'd expect to read in an official royal triumphant inscription. It certainly wouldn't be expected from a regime of strict Mazda-centric monotheists. No, this is one of the rare early Achaemenid acknowledgments that they did, in fact, have and pray to other divine beings, the ones who eventually became known as the Zoroastrian Yazada. Clearly, they didn't play a large role at this point, but they were still acknowledged in momentous circumstances. The penultimate piece of the column catalogs the co-conspirators who aided Darius when he overthrew Gomada or Bardia. I listed them all back in episode 19, and some of them have popped up over the course of Darius's campaigns, but just to reiterate, these were Intafrenes, Otanes, Gabrias, Hidarines, Megabizus, and Ardumanish. After their names and fathers are listed, Darius issues this command to his successors. You who may be king hereafter, protect the family of these men. It's clear that these men and their descendants were to have a special status in the Persian nobility thereafter. Later versions of the story of Darius would contain slightly different lists of names that reflected the highest nobles of their contemporary Persian nobility. The loss of Intifrenes after he attacked two of Darius's guards and was accused of treason was probably the first time that the story was revised. But most of Darius's co-conspirators were the foundations of the upper echelons of Persian nobility for generations to come. In the last line of column four, we finally get that key piece of information for understanding the timeline of Old Persian, where Darius says that he created the Aryan script for the occasion. That's the end of where the monument looks properly formatted. A fifth shorter column extends out to the right of the relief, looking like it's just sticking off the end there, and has the stories of the Third Rebellion in Alam and the campaigns against the Eastern Saka. Those wars came later than the other rebellions and appear to have been added after the rest of the monument had been planned out and marked on the mountainside. In fact, a lot of the monument as it stands today looks like it was tacked on at the end after the properly formatted part of the monument was complete. Skunka, king of the Saka, captured in the last campaign of the monument, is represented, but in a small box that juts out at the end of the line of lyre kings without the rest of the relief extending over it. The Elamite version of the text is split, with part of it on the right end of the relief and another section down to the left below. The Akkadian text is on the left side, but wraps around the corner like they didn't leave enough room for it. Then there are small paragraphs of Persian and Elamite just kind of floating in the empty space above Darius's head. 
The final product was an immense and impressive monument that still somehow looks kind of haphazard. The best explanation anyone seems to have is that Darius kept expanding his expectations and telling his workers to add things that he wanted on the monument, like the campaign against the Saka or the Akkadian translation, after work had already been started on the core relief and the old Persian sections. For all its importance and grandeur, the Behistun inscription is ultimately a prototype. We can see the Achaemenid royal reliefs more or less how they would persist across the history of the empire, and the development of Persian literature had begun, but this was the first Persian attempt to make their signature trilingual inscriptions. It was an experiment with a victory monument that everyone afterward decided not to repeat, and probably a lesson in monumental planning for a Persian culture that was still getting the hang of running the empire. But... The ability to carve a message for the ages of triumph and power into the side of a sacred mountain was a sign. They were getting the hang of it, and the Behistun inscription was just the first of many monuments to the power of the Achaemenid Empire. And over the next couple of episodes, we're going to explore that empire. Like I said in the last episode, we have reached the maximum extent of Persian power. This is the biggest that any Persian empire will ever be, and I think that makes it high time that we go for a tour. It's been a long time since we actually did a proper tour of the region to investigate each province and country in its own right. So for the next couple of episodes, that's what we're going to do. We're going to go for a tour of the empire and see just what these provinces that Darius is getting set up are like. Until then, if you want to find more information about the show, my bibliography, the support page, or the Achaemenid family tree up to Darius's children... You can find that on the website, historyofpersiapodcast.com. If you want to reach out to me with feedback, support, or just to say hi or ask a question, you can do that through social media or my email. You can use the contact page on the website or historyofpersiapodcast at gmail.com. And you can find me on social media as at History of Persia on Twitter and History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. If you want to support the show, but you aren't sure about using Patreon, the absolute best way anybody can support this is if they go and tell other people. Tell your friends, share it around on social media. Those are the best way. Just get the word out and let other people know that the history of Persia is here. You can also leave reviews on your podcast service of choice. If you use iTunes or Stitcher, there's an easy mechanism to review the show right there. And I always love seeing your feedback. Until then, thank you all so much for listening to the history of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park.
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.